Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff sitting in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. Again, we're Robert, we're here in Lourdes, France on pilgrimage. What a wonderful place to be. Absolutely. The best studio. Far better than our one in Memphis, Deacon Jeff. Oh, yeah. And, and trust me, that the, the cafe lattes, the cappuccinos are much better. Are much than, better than the ones you make. Yeah, that little Keurig machine where we just like press out the one at a time uh, out of the little plastic cups. It's not nearly as good is having the person that speaks no English come and bring it to you. It tastes so good, yeah. So, And we have a great guest To talk about again. a very sad su- subject today. Well, very serious and something that needs to be addressed. Yes. And, and I think that uh, it's good to see some of the works of the order and some of the things that are going on in the world. And a lot of That's people true. who might listen who are not as familiar with what happens in the Order of Malta. Um, and, and, and the Order of Malta's presence on the world stage is very important. And, uh, and so that's why we brought in someone else we bumped into here in the streets, here on pilgrimage in, in Lourdes. And we have um, Ambassador Justin Simpson, who is the uh, Order of Malta's diplomatic representative in Ramallah. Ramallah. Where is that? Go? Welcome here, Ambassador. Yeah, welcome to the luxurious corner booth here. Thank you very much. It's uh, so good to have you. Thank you very much indeed. I'll start by saying Ramallah is on the West Bank, so a short drive from Jerusalem, Bethlehem. And uh, very much in the heart of the Middle East. It's in the Holy Land. The heart of the Holy Land. And as you know, that's a very special place to the order. It's where we started in Jerusalem 950 years ago. And in fact, that site of that original hospital is still one that I have the great joy to visit frequently in Jerusalem. In fact, a lot of things started there, and, and, and uh, we, we know from maybe about 2,000 years ago some important things happened there as well. So for our faith, it's actually a very, uh, a very uh, sacred and special place as well. It's a great gift to be able to work for the order in that part of the world because literally every day you're driving past places where our Lord worked or names that you read yeah, in the Bible. Beautiful. It's, uh, it's, uh, beautiful. You know, and at the same time, I think all of us, if, we've, if we turn on the TV would instantly see that uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in that part of the world that's not always uh, in, in the best interest of humanity. And, Ambassador, we're getting a lot of messages on the news now about a horrible thing. I mean, Christians seem to be horribly persecuted in that area. Is that true? Unfortunately, there are horrendous stories. We, we always have to remember, though, that the news gravitates towards the catastrophic and bad. And so well, sure. I hope we get a chance to chat a little bit about some absolutely wonderful things that are going on as well. But, but let me start by saying that the news reports of... The persecution of Christians are accurate, and in some cases, the Christian communities are really under threat. Uh, in a lot of cases, they're just under economic or social pressure uh, and not a threat of their lives. But sadly, right. the advance of some of these uh, catastrophically destructive movements has really uh, endangered communities and, and places that have been a seat of Christianity since literally our Lord walked on the earth. Right, and you know, I think one of the reasons why I think it's important for us to sort of, to sort of tackle this that's a very important topic here, like in our, in our Catholic cafe. You know, we're usually sitting here, you know, sipping coffee and, and, and talking about, you know, nice and wonderful things. But sometimes there are times when we need to talk about things that just need to be addressed. And we, 
we wonder. You know, I think some people just don't really know specifically what's going on. And not, and not that we want to get into the politics of things, but just really understanding the plight of Christians and understanding uh, in really in all religions to understand uh, people being human and trying to live the best life they can live in that area. Well, Deacon Jeff, when you mention the word human, I think that's the most important. If you think about this complex, complex corner of the world, there are communities of all stripes and faiths living mostly in harmony with each other. There are places like Lebanon where there are 14 or 15 official faiths and for most of their history they've been perfectly situated now in some tremendously complex politics and some tremendously painful experiences to live through but those haven't necessarily been religious as much as political. And so these wonderful examples of coexistence are manifest and we work to encourage those. We manifest our Christianity by our humanitarian action. I'll give you some, some good examples. Just, uh, just recently my wife and I visited Lebanon where the order is very active uh, and we stood on the border of the Lebanese border with Syria which is, as you know, desperately under threat. Right. Uh, whether you call it Islamic State, ISIL, ISIS, this really destructive uh, force that is really sweeping chaos and catastrophe in its mm-hmm. wake. And is, it, are they, is, ISIS, is that group killing Christians or displacing them? or what, what, what is the core of the problem going on for our listeners? Well, that group is what I would call a fanatic Islamist group. And so they are killing Christians, but they're killing their brother Muslims as well. It's an orthodox version or distortion of Islam. I'm not a theologian, so I'll right. stick, if I may, on the humanitarian mm-hmm. front. But certainly they see anybody who disagrees with their fundamental view of Islam as it was at the time of Muhammad as an enemy and to be displaced or killed. And that includes, as I say, vast majorities of Muslim communities that happen to disagree, but also these Christian communities that have come under threat. And how many have come under threat? Are we talking about thousands or hundreds? We're talking about millions, actually. In, uh, In the Syrian civil war, a vast swathe of humanity, over 5 million people have been displaced from their homes. A number of those have left the country completely. And so Lebanon, as I was describing, uh, which has a natural population of about 4 million, currently has over 1.2 million refugees Mm. on their soil. So if you picture, uh, as uh, you you might hear from my accent, we were talking about the United Kingdom in context. It's as if the entire population of three or four European countries had showed up on our doorstep with the shirts on their back and nothing else. Uh, And so this Lebanese culture, as an example, that had been a model of coexistence uh, and service is under extreme stress because of the need to serve these refugees. So the Order of Malta, uh, as I said, manifests our Christianity by by giving help to those who need it. Standing on the border looking over Syria, uh, we were in a village where the Order of Malta has a clinic, for example, that helps uh, a village of 200 people that have had 1,000 refugees show up on their doorstep. We are not proselytizing in the slightest, but the cross of the Order of Malta, the Christian cross, is on visibly on our uniforms and on our ambulances. But we sit in partnership with the local Muslim community we right. work in a mosque, and we serve everybody who's there. You can imagine a village of 200 desperately needs outside help to provide basic medical care to those people. And that helps probably fight against the violence, doesn't it, when they see that, that Christian groups like the Order of Malta are not just uh, helping the Christians that are trouble, but also Muslims and everyone else in the community. We believe that that is fundamental to our idea of Christian service. The order 950 years ago took in patients, whether they were Christian, Muslim, or otherwise, into our hospital in Jerusalem. It was not a small enterprise. Imagine 950 years ago, a 2,000-bed hospital feeding another 2,000 pilgrims every day, and so recognized 
for its service to the broader community, that its Christian witness uh, meant that when the Christians left at the end of the First Crusade, the brothers of the Hospital of St. John in Jerusalem were asked to stay on to take care of their patients in recognition that they weren't damaging the community. In fact, they were helping the community. We try to keep that spirit right. going. So in Bethlehem, uh, we have a maternity hospital. We help deliver about 3,200 babies a year. It's a wonderful, wonderful story that there's always room at the end, just literally a short walk from the church in the nativity. The vast majority of our patients are, are Muslim. I think uh, Pasteur said, I ask not what is your race or creed or your religion, I ask what ails you. And I think that's what drives And that's so beautiful. I, I guess I'd, I'd, I'd bring up again and, and, and touch on that point that, you know, you talk to a lot of folks who are... I'll say uneducated, and you know, I would maybe use the the, the Christian, um, you know, the ignorant. I mean, there's some, there's some ignorance in the world, right? And and, and one of our uh, works of mercy is to uh, to address uh, ignorance. And I think we experience a lot of folks who might think, uh, you know, looking at that world stage, that we have this perception that you know maybe with all that trouble and strife over there, if we would just like drop some bombs or something and get rid of the whole area. You know that maybe that would be an answer, which obviously it's not an answer because we have all of these uh, humans, right, that need to be cared for, that need to, uh, that need the services, the works that you that you're providing there. And not only do they need the material work that we provide, but I think they need the dignity that is conferred by the love with which that work is given. There are many, many examples of wonderful Muslim families that want nothing more than to raise their children, educate their children, raise their families in safety and security. There are absolutely comfortable with the political environment. They're not agitating for change nor doing anything physical to harm. And the ability to show Christian witness in service in partnership with them as well. In the south of Lebanon, for example, there's a a wonderful organization. So the south of Lebanon is a a Shia Muslim heartland. And we work in partnership with an organization down there to provide medical services to the communities in need. The women that we partner with are mostly Shia Muslim women, and so they wear a veil, which covers most of their face, not the full uh, veil, but but certainly a veil that shows their faith to the outside world, Uh, and yet on their uniforms they have the cross of the order. I can think of no stronger sense of partnership and Christian witness, and the communities that are served by that recognize that, in this case, Christianity is a way to maintain the strength of presence, and they support and love the Christian communities there. They aren't the ones that are under threat for... Right. And what a beautiful witness, too, to be able to see that, to experience that. And I wish more people had that opportunity to see that because, again, we, we, we start uh, you know, casting out solutions that are actually not based in any reality whatsoever, especially because you'll have uh, certain radical elements or whatever, and we would think that the entire population might be um, uh, in, in that. And we think about the, the innocent women and children in, in the Holy Family Hospital. This, what you guys do there is just amazing. Uh, how beautiful, what stories you have. It's actually lovely that you mentioned that. I've just come back, and we've just had a wonderful experience. About 25 years ago, when the Order of Malta was asked at that point by Pope John Paul II to take on responsibility for the hospital, we delivered our first baby to a young Christian family. And about six years ago, she came back to the hospital because the 50,000th delivery happened to a beautiful young Muslim couple. And so this girl who was our first delivery held in her arms the 50,000th. Just last week, she came back to deliver her own baby. And so oh, our very first baby held in her arms her very own uh, baby, so the first generation of, of service. And uh, it, could, it couldn't have made us happier. This is all happening where women are asked to make a contribution if they can. 
uh, certainly we think that adds dignity, but nobody is turned away for a lack of ability to pay. We fund whatever is needed so that there is always, as I say, room at the end. Oh, that's a beautiful, beautiful testimony to what's going on there. And again, that people would hear that this is, this, these are beautiful Christian acts of love that are taking place. Uh, and even just if you took the word Christian off and they're acts of love, which we would know and understand that, that all love is born out of uh, the Father, right? That we would, we would see that in that Christian context. But even so, uh, that these acts are taking place in a place where everyone thinks it's just actually ho- horrific. Now, we, Robert, we don't want to take away from some of the, the plight and the problems with people who are trying to, to share that love. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and suffering is very difficult to be a Christian in that area. Well, I think that the concern I always have, Ambassador, is, is this a hopeless? You, you see all the Christians leaving. And you hear about all these stories and you hear about them for years. What can we do or what is the order? To, is, is this a hopeless task? Or, I mean, what, how do we respond to an overwhelming uh, sense uh, uh, problem like this? I think there is never such a thing as a hopeless task. And whether you take the Mother Teresa serving one person at a time uh, or you take larger scale of operation, and in fact we operate in uh, the majority of Muslim countries, we have diplomatic relations, that's probably something that's worth mentioning, but we have the ability to engage at the government level with a large number of the players in that part of the world, and that gives us a special uh, partnership and access. We think that we and others who are committed, be they governments, charities, many of them faith-motivated charities, our Christian brothers are very active in a, a number of different wonderful examples. Uh, of service in these in these parts of the world, these are ways to provide hope. Uh, so there might be Christian communities that are under physical and immediate threat, and they have to leave, and we can't do anything about that. We're not an army, right. uh, and there might only be military solutions to certain of the problems. But in other places, those Christian families might be facing economic challenge or feeling that they are unable to live uh, a comfortable and free life to bring up their children and their families in the way that they'd like, and that challenge requires a different way to address it as well. But I certainly don't believe that there are certainly things that would make you uh, question the humanity of certain of the people and the actions that they've taken, but there's always hope. Yeah, and I love the fact that you use the word hope because, again, I mean, again from our, our Catholic in our Catholic faith, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, uh, that we talk about the sin of despair. You know, the idea that despair is something that uh, it's, it's a willful act to sort of lose hope. You know, and in a despair, you would, you would lose hope, and yet you are bringing, you know, you're bringing hope to a region that would, you know, might appear to be hopeless. And you asked a moment ago what people can do, and I think one of the things, not everybody can visit, of course, but those who have the privilege or the ability to visit, I strongly encourage it. There are many of these places that appear in the newspapers only in a negative context. If I say words like Nablus or Janine, uh, Ramallah, that might be alarming to some people because they've associated it with something negative. Right. In fact, my own patronymic saint, Justin, came from Nablus, a Roman town. Well, we're going to continue to talk about this in one second, but uh, uh, before we do that, I want to remind folks at home we have a great website, www.thecatholiccafe.com. And also, I'd love for you to email me. Send me an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And please don't despair. We'll be right back. And this is another great moment in church history. Born in the year 251 in Egypt, St. Anthony of the Desert rose to become the father of monasticism. He took these words of the gospel to heart. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you have, and give to the poor. 
As a young man of 20, he gave away his vast wealth and went to live in poverty and solitude in the desert. St. Anthony fasted on bread and water, only eating after sunset each day. The fasting strengthened him for the many spiritual assaults he would endure. Much like Christ's 40 days of fast in the desert, he was tortured by demonic spirits and tempted to great evil. But his strength and confidence in God never failed him. St. Anthony was known to have said, The devil is afraid of us when we pray and make sacrifices. He is also afraid when we are humble and good. He is especially afraid when we love Jesus very much. He runs away when we make the sign of the cross. Christ never abandoned him during these trials, but only made him stronger for his great vocation. St. Anthony's reputation began to grow, and he gathered many followers. He was known as a miraculous healer. He became a spiritual counselor to many and recommended a simple life based on the Gospels. He was finally convinced to found two separate monasteries and began a rule of life for monastic living. The monastery St. Anthony initiated were the first to be started and thus began the great tradition and history of monastic life in the church. These pioneering monks practiced prayer, fasting, and almsgiving and lived a life apart from the world in constant reparation for their sins and the sins of others. It is said that two Greek philosophers once came to St. Anthony because of his reputation for wisdom. He told them, If you think me wise, become what I am, for we ought to imitate the good. Had I gone to you, I should have imitated you, but since you have come to me, become what I am, for I am a Christian. St. Anthony lived until the ripe old age of 105 and died peacefully in a cave near the Red Sea. He is a great witness to the simple life of prayer and fasting we as Christians are called to live. St. Anthony of the Desert's Feast Day is celebrated by the Universal Church on January 17th. I'm Bess Trzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And we're back in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff. And uh, we're, we're, you know, covering a lot of ground here and hopefully bringing some idea of a, a sense of reality to what the situation as complex as it can be in the Middle East and, and, and where you are, uh, you're doing your work. I wonder, we started to talk about, you know, what can you do? And you, you, you invited people to come and experience the humanity, to come and to see the people, right? You experience the humanity, it changes a lot of things. But then also we started to talk about this idea of how, what are the things that the, the, the order is doing to bring hope. And so maybe you can give some idea of, of what the order is active uh, in doing here. I, I'd be happy to do that, and I'd like to give you three different examples. One is short-term, and the other two are longer-term solutions. The short-term example with these huge displaced refugee populations, as we were chatting about, find themselves under, under threat, under physical threat, needing to flee from their homes, sometimes to neighboring countries, sometimes within their own country. And we have teams on the ground that are helping. In the case of the Syrian refugees I mentioned, the numbers are in the millions. It's quite staggering. In, so there are millions of people in Syria that are displaced? There are over 5 million displaced, and over 2 million of those have left. So in Turkey, in, uh, in Syria itself, in Iraq, 
and in various other countries, uh, Jordan, uh, the uh, refugees have to be housed temporarily. And literally in Jordan, a a town of over a million has emerged in the desert where there was literally sand just a couple of years ago. And you had to feed all those people and sanitation and hygiene. and Exactly. And so we have teams on the ground that are participating. It's a vast effort. And as you can imagine, a number of wonderful organizations, governments, charities, religious groups are doing everything they can to make those people as comfortable as they can be and to be able to live with dignity as well as with the basic services that they'd require. That's, I say short-term, we hope it's a short-term problem, but as long as the war continues in Syria and they're not safe there, it's hard to see how they might be able to return and resume some sort of normal life. So short-term in that case may be measured, in, in sadly, in, in years. In the longer term, though, there are some wonderful things. The Holy Family Hospital in Bethlehem that we mentioned is a, is a fantastic example of of a beautiful thing, not only beautiful because it's so close to the church and the nativity and we are offering room at the inn, but also because we're offering a standard of care that any mother who delivers in the United States or in Western Europe would recognize as as first world expert care. We take our doctors and train them all over the world. We have a teaching arrangement with Hadassah Hospital in Jerusalem where our doctors can go a short distance from Bethlehem, where our hospital is, and and make sure that they're trained in the latest way. We have teaching partnerships with universities around the world. We have governments that are supplying us with expertise or mechanical machinery so that the surgery and the facilities that we offer are the greatest. We've started to do things which are quite alien to the culture of that part of the world. I mentioned, for example, a Well Woman program. The particular pathologies that come with the post-childbearing age, shall we say, for women are well understood in the Western world, in the Mm, United States. Uh, in the Arab world that hasn't necessarily been the case. And so we have to first to teach women that the symptoms that they're experiencing might be common to their age group right. and not personal to them. We have to make them aware that there are solutions, sometimes quite straightforward solutions, that can materially change their quality of life. Uh, and so that's something which is reaching beyond the traditional hospital care but well into the community. Is that causing resistance within the community? Yeah, I wonder culturally, does, is that... You're not trying to obviously change the culture, but you're trying to make people aware of things that might not be commonly understood, right? I wouldn't say it's meeting with resistance, actually. We've been embraced. The Ministry of Health in Ramallah is very excited by that program. A number of uh, other overseas organizations that are active in that part of the world are looking for ways to join with us to expand. And the women themselves, of course, are tremendously grateful. We have um, a beautiful... Palestinian gynecologist uh, of that age herself as the front of our campaign, if you like, able to tell these women and communicate. She goes out into the desert when we go out to serve these isolated communities of Bedouins or villages that are uh, often remote areas and not able to receive normal services. So not only do we give them their basic medical examination for the expectant mothers, but now we can communicate to them about this new thing. We're really trying to spread that word, and it's meeting, I would say, with, with support and enthusiasm rather than anything else. And it's so beautiful, I think, that when, you, when you're able to do these kinds of ministries and you're supposed to working this way, really you're tied to life. Your humanity and, and the assistance that you're giving is not so much, I mean, while there's a spiritual context and spiritual element, as you said, when you don't proselytize, Really, to to be Christ to others really is is much more important than to tell people about Christ. Does that make sense? I mean, am I, am I saying it right? Because you're you're actually living it. Uh, that's a, a beautiful way of expressing it. Uh, when I was in Lebanon recently in the Bekaa Valley, we, my wife and I had the privilege of visiting a center for aged people. And every day they go out into the various communities and bring back a group of people, so that there are about sixty or seventy aged people who otherwise wouldn't have much in their life in the way of activity or stimulation. That 60 or 70 represents 12 or 13 different faith groups, Sunni, Shia, Druze, 
Latin Catholics, Maronites, Eastern Rite Catholics, Syriac Catholics. They're all sitting together. They're it sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, doesn't it? It does sound and, like and that, again, but the punchline in this is that they're, they're loving each other and getting along beautiful. and working out how to be neighbors together in a very happy and joyous environment. That's got to be a blessing for you to be just to be involved in that, to see that, and to help carry it out. Every day that I spend in the Holy Land is a blessing to me in so many different ways, and that is one of the dimensions of now, it. Ambassador, you mentioned a third. We were talking about the things you can do. A third, ish, a third program that we're doing that can help with the... Um, yeah, through, in the, through the diplomatic office of the Order of Malta in Ramallah, we've started a program which we call the Dignity Loan Program. Uh, and this is a way of creating the dignity that comes from providing for yourself or providing for your family. So it's beyond our normal sphere of medical or humanitarian care, but we found a community that's very isolated, uh, a small group of villages uh, far in the, in the middle of the West Bank. Uh, and we're providing small loans that allow people to create small businesses. So, for example, we funded the expansion of a nursery to double the size of that A plant nursery? nursery or a no, a nursery for small children. Oh, okay. Oh, wonderful. Uh, the doubling of the size allowed the owner of that nursery to create another job by hiring another woman from the village and allowed the mothers in the village to have a safe place to put their children so that they could then go and work and provide for their families. I provided a loan to a wonderful young woman who's studying engineering at Al-Najaf University. She has to take a bus an hour and a half every day to university, an hour and a half home, and care for five younger brothers. The loan that we provided enabled her to create a, a, a structure for and a, a buy a, a flock of sheep. And so in addition to the responsibilities of being an engineering student, which is the same there as it would be anywhere in the world, mm-hmm. pretty onerous, she and her family use this flock of sheep to, to produce milk products, which they then sell, which helps supplement uh, the cost of her university education. Terrifically proud young woman and doesn't want to do it with bursaries or gifts. She wants to do it herself. And this is why uh, uh, you call it the Dignity Alone Program. I mean, essentially, a lot of times we, we understand that sometimes just when we hand out, and sometimes we're called to, to, to hand out, to give assistance for those that we know can't repay. And that's, that's fine, too. But in these situations, you're helping people to be self-sufficient, to, to lift up themselves and to, and to work through that process as well, aren't you? That's exactly the objective. And it does seem that when people understand that repaying that loan gives them a sense of worth, right. but also allows that money to be recycled into the same community. It has a, a, a double benefit, and we're very uh, excited by the impact that that's had. That's fantastic. So we only have a few seconds left in our program here, but I, I wonder if you might, uh, just one more time, we, we talk about all the things that we see on television, and that just doesn't tell the story, does it? And so just, uh, it, we're talking to the average person here who's like not 100% sure, what message do you give them? Do you let them know? Uh, that they need to understand about this area in this this time. The Holy Land is a beautiful place. It's filled with wonderful people, many of whom care for each other in the sense of community, whether they be Muslim, Christian, Jewish, or any other faith. There are some negative aspects, but in any case, the media often chooses to overplay the negative aspects. I'd say to anybody, if you can't come and see it, watch, inform about it, certainly pray. Pray for the Christians, pray for peaceful coexistence, uh, and pray for the folk that are in desperate need of help because there are many. Beautiful. Thank you, Ambassador, for being here with us and, and just sort of opening our eyes to that area, maybe giving us a, a new and a more genuine perspective uh, in all of this. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Deacon Jeff. And speaking of prayer, let's ask Our Lady for her intercession. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full, full of grace, grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to the Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.